For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. This is Perspectives, the show where we have a conversation about how we might be different only to find out that we really do have more in common. I'm Condis Presley, and I am welcoming to the show a guest who's been with us before, Ed Hagem. He was with us, I think sometime right as the pandemic started, to talk about his story on The Road Less Traveled. Ed is back with a new book, The Island of the Four Peas, a modern fable about preparing for your future. The book's purpose is to help readers navigate troubled waters. We know something about that. Acknowledge change, handle instability, and cope with uncertainty. Ed is currently the chairman of High Vista. That's a Boston-based money management company. He has received the Horatio Alger Award. He is the founder of the award-winning Nantucket Golf Club and the largest single donor to his alma mater, the University of Rochester. In this book, The Island of Four Peas, which he's going to tell you about, he shares a story stemming from his four Peas, partners, principles, passions, and plans. Ed, tell us about this new book and how you decided it was what you would do next. I started seven years ago. As you, as you know from my story, when I graduated high school, I decided to bury my past. And I buried it for nearly 60 years. And then I decided I would, well, I was forced to write about it. My wife and children said, you must write about it. Rachel Alger was going to tell the world. So I decided to start writing about it. And it took me seven years. And I started with, with, the, with the, the four Ps. And I wrote the book in about two and a half years. And then I met a young lady, ghostwriter, said, you can't do this. You got to write your autobiography first. <laughs> so I put that aside and I started on the autobiography, which took me another. She didn't work out. She wanted too much drama in my life. She wanted me to hate my father. And I didn't hate my father. So that didn't work. But I got another ghostwriter. And finally, after seven years, I produced On the Road Less Travel. But I had the manuscript for the four piece. So as soon as the road less travel got traveled a little bit, two years of traveling with the road less travel, I decided to put out the four Ps, which is my favorite book, because I think what's interesting, I've conveyed the ideas I used as a person during my life in a fable. If you look back in history, many of the great ideas were communicated with by fables. Uh, you know, who moved my cheese, the alchemist, go way back, Gulliver's Travels, uh, Don Quixote, even Dr. Seuss. So I'm, so it's a book, an interesting book. It's, it's not a book that tells you what's right or wrong, what you should do. It gives you the questions you should ask yourself because I believe as we communicate in the book that everybody's unique. What I'm trying to give them is a fun way of answer, asking the questions that will allow them to make better life decisions. And that's really kind of the, the whole story. And a young man goes to an island, meets an older man who's not a teacher, he's a guide. And he guides them through the questions. And they go to these different villages, which have lots of algorithm in them. For example, to get to the village of principles, you must climb a tall mountain to get to the village. And to get to the village of partners, you have to help each other down the mountain. So it's kind of interesting. You'll have some fun with it. As one person who said, it's worth three times, each time totally different. 
first time have fun second time sort of dig in a little bit and third time find a couple things you want to follow so it's been fun it's only two and by the way the lady who did the job on uh, the the audible 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 six six different voices plus mine which can be really a lot of fun she did a good job how did you know the four P's, the principles that have guided you through your life, would make such a good read for others? Well, you, you see, first, first of all, I, 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 had to, I became a chairman of the Board of Trustees of the University of Washington, which means I would eventually speak at 70 or 80 graduations and probably as many other gatherings as possible. And I had to build something that would talk a little bit about something I could communicate. So I went back to my pile of yellow pads that I've had throughout my life and writing things down, what I should do next. And I sure enough found a theme in there, which were the four Ps. Each time I asked myself, what's my passion? How has it changed? What are my principles? So I have some new principles that I'm trying to follow. Then what, what kind of partners do I need to, to pursue this experience? And then I wrote down my plans, physically wrote down my plans. And I went and said, here are the pluses, here are the minuses. And therefore, I was able to make decisions. And I look back and I actually use this, this, this sort of framework, as I call it, collect on top of the original framework, which I set up also in the four Ps, of the four parts of life, which are self, family, work, and community, which is my word to give, give it, giving it back. And essentially, if you look at those four parts of life, it's a juggling act. By definition, once you focus on one of them, you got the other ball in the air. You focus on work, your family gets neglected to some smaller or lesser extent. And so I use the four Ps to help me with this juggling act as well. So I go to go into your, your, your mind and I say, here are eight words you got to pay, pay attention to, four parts or four buckets of life, as I call it, self-family, work and community. And by the way, there are many people in life in my business on Wall Street that didn't go to the fourth bucket, which is that community situation. And the greatest satisfaction I had in my life is the chance to give back. And in little ways and big ways. And uh, you know, I, can, I can sort of talk about that at, at length. But those are the four things that are the fourth eight words, which I think are very important. But the four Ps in my mind, if you go through those four Ps, I think you'll find that it will help you make life decisions. And then we're all unique. We all have different, you know, like, for example, I use self. Everybody has a set of genes. And even if you have the same set of genes, if you go through different circumstances, you end up as a different person. And that's some, one of the other messages I try to communicate to people. You have to understand who you are first. Then you got to decide, you know, how much time and energy you're going to spend in building a family. Then obviously you have to work to make, you know, a living. And if you get a chance with all three of those, take that fourth ball, which is community, and start giving back sometime in your life. I want to let you guys know a little bit more about Ed Hagem. He is the author of the critically acclaimed memoir on the Road Less Traveled. He is the author of the critically acclaimed memoir on the Road Less Traveled. Ed's the son of a Syrian immigrant who is also a seasoned Wall Street executive with more than 50 years of investment experience. He has held senior management positions with all the big ones on Wall Street and then a number of others. Currently, he is now the chairman of High Vista. It's a Boston-based money management company. In 2008, after 20 years as a trustee of the University of Rochester, Hagen began an eight-year tenure as the chairman of the university's board. And when he got that gig, get this, he gave the school $30 million. And to date, that remains the largest single 
donation in the school's history. It supports scholarships and endows the Edmund A. Hagem School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Oh, and by the way, about the Horatio Alger Award, that one's given to Americans who exemplify the values of initiative, leadership, and commitment to excellence, and who have succeeded despite personal adversities. But Ed, what I want you to do is to tell me about that donation. Well, first of all, let me just tell you, one of the reasons I'm, I gave the gift, and you made the same mistake that a thousand people make, I gave it so that the kids at the school would have to pronounce my name correctly, which mm-hmm. I've had suffered with all my life. It's Hajim and not Hajim. Hajim sounds better, but Hajim's much better. No, I, I really believe in three reasons. One, the first reason, the most important reason, oh, Ed, first reason was I really believe in sponsoring engineers. We need applied sciences in America. And this was a chance to really get, and I was an engineer. So this is a, a good chance to really back that experience. And I really wanted to do some. I had a goal for 10 years on the board. It was basically to collect all the engineering disciplines and put them in one place. And with giving this gift, I was able not only to, to name the school after me, but I put, we created a quadrangle. So Mr. Eastman, George Eastman and I have the two quadrangles at the University of Rochester. And the gift, by the way, was the largest gift in nominal terms. I gave $30 million. Good old George gave $27 million 50 years ago. So that was worth much more than, than $30 million today. But in a nominal sense, my gift was the largest gift. And I gave it as a Roger Bannister gift hoping someone would top me. So far, no one has topped me yet. But the, the, the second reason was the humorous reason of, of having everybody have to pronounce my name correctly. But the third reason was very simple, to give back. And that was a great chance to give back. And I'm sponsoring the school now. I talk at, I'm going up there next week. I'm going to talk at six different graduations at all the different disciplines. And, and, and I, just, I, I've, I had 20 college scholarship students. Now that I have eight up there, eight a year. And just to listen to the, the kids. And uh, yesterday I was on the phone with four of them and they had them tell their stories. I'm telling you, you know, you say I gave a lot. I get back much more than I've given by what far. What kind of questions do those students ask you? Pardon? What kind of questions do the students ask you when you get a chance to talk to your scholars? Well, ye- yesterday they, they wanted, they wanted uh, you know, advice about should they be an engineer or should they, they blend it with business or some other discipline? And I said, each person's different. There's a continuum in engineers. There's the true scientist engineer, and that person should leave undergraduate and go to graduate school. There's the guy in the middle or the gal in the middle who basically thinks he's an engineer but not sure. They're probably take a couple of years of work and decide whether they want to go back into engineering or go into business and law. And then there's the third kind of engineer, which I was, who basically felt I loved engineering, but I really wanted to be a businessman. And so I, t- I told him, I said, decide what kind of person you are. If you truly love the science, there's no question that you leave undergraduate, go right to graduate school. If not, go to work for a couple of years. And third, if you really feel you, you want to go into business, then go to business school or law school. So I, that was one of the big questions. Uh, the other question was, you know, I, we made a big point of not wasting your summers. And I, I really beat them up on their summers because it's a chance to really experience something and find out what you really want to do. Because the names on things, you know, are very different than the job. So I said, they said to me, how can I decide what job to take? I said, forget about the name. Ask what you're going to do Monday morning. What physically do you do Monday morning? How much responsibility will you have in this job? And then, of course, second and most important thing in the job is who you're going to work with or for. So those are, those are the kind of questions they asked. Uh, they were just a delightful group of kids, two, two, two ladies and two boys, and they were just, they, they were just 
all excited. And, and they did span the, span the spectrum. One was really a scientist and one said, well, I like this engineering stuff, but I really want to be a businessman. So I had a chance to really kick. And they, they started talking between themselves, which was fun. I want to talk a little more in depth about these four P's. You mentioned them earlier, finding passion, establishing principles, deciding with whom you will partner, and making a plan. How did you find your motivation, your why? It's, that's what I really think is very important. Let me just go through mine and so you can, you can sort of reference yours. I think your pa- some people get passions. You know, Tiger Woods got golf passion at three years old, and you know, Birdie didn't start until he was 80. So, but I think most passions start to show themselves when you're kind of in your middle teens or in high school. And I got my, my passions in high school were math and science, baseball and basketball, and girls. But when I went to college, <laughs> went to college, that started to morph a little bit. You know, math and science morphed into first physics, which I failed in. I tried it out, didn't work. And I recommend people try that. I thought I'd be a scientist. I moved back into engineering. Then my my math, my 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 baseball and basketball after freshman year realized I wasn't going to be a professional athlete. Morphed into under extracurricular activities, and that really helped me find my real passion, which was to put people together to solve a problem, to create a product, to, to, to start a program. And I put 30 of the people together when I was a junior to create a magazine that didn't exist at the time, a human magazine like the Harvard Lampoon. And I really got a kick out of that. And even there, I found later on in my life, I looked back at that and I said, my passion was to help people do better than they thought they could, which is a management technique. And if people feel that, you can get a lot out of them. And of course, you know, what your, even my passion changed even more. Now, what's, what's my passion right now? My passion now is taking these ideas and helping them communicate with people and help them, helping them get through the, those, those bumps in life. So you, my passion changed completely now. At my work, I'm a chairman of a company in Boston. I took the job because this guy's an old friend. He, I, he said, I want you to be the chairman. I said, what does the chairman do? He said, nothing. I said, I'll take the job. <laughs> but, you know, my work is very, very limited right now. And this book situation is, is really my passion at this point. I still have a passion for golf and, you know, I, I have passion for you know, being with my children, but you know, the, your passions change. You have to watch them. And, and uh, for example, I had a passion to make money because I had no money. But at age forty-seven, at Lehman Brothers, I made enough—just enough, not not a lot. I was, wasn't rich, but I made the choice between making more money, living in a prestigious company, and actually exercising my true interest, which was to run a company. So I went to work for Furman Cells, which nobody ever heard of, little tiny company, leaving Lehman Brothers and its dining room and its gorgeous office overlooking the harbor. My new office overlooked a brick wall and our dining room was two hot plates in the conference room. But I loved it because this was my passion. I really wanted to take these 70 people and help them become a real big company. And we were luckily over 20 years, that's what we did. And so I was truly exercised my, my passion during that period. And actually when it got to a certain size, I sold it because I didn't really want to run a great big company. So I found out who I was and luckily I had a chance to exercise my passion. But that's uh, it's very important. Passion by is an overused word. Passion includes talents, likes, dislikes, and it's got to be put into a context. You know, you can have a passion that's you know already passed or a passion which is too much in the future. And you have to sort of figure out what period of history. In the book, the, you know, the young lady and young man sit in something called an observatorium. They go up in and they study the history of, of all kinds of changes. And so you have to find the kind of change in your lifetime that you can exercise your passion. And of course, I was very lucky because when I went to Wall Street in 1983, it was the beginning of a huge run. You know, 
I, you know, I did a good job, but the stock market was the wind at my back. I, the market went up 10 times in the first 20 years of my, on, on, in, when I was on Wall Street. So, so that it's, it's, you find your passion, find the context, and then try to exercise it. Ed, your passion and your why tend to grow over time. Clearly, you are a builder. But principles tend to be established early and don't necessarily evolve. Talk to us about the lines you will not cross. My father thrust me into the Catholic welfare system when I was when he had to go to war for five years, and and I ta- I learned the most important principle, which was the golden rule. I learned it with the golden ruler. The nuns, you know, they threw in the Ten Commandments, but the golden rule was the most important thing, and they basically, you know, set my sort of principles early on. You're right; those don't change, but principles do evolve. Like I just said, I found principles in, in high school and college that I really like. I enjoyed people, you know. I, I, my passion was to help people do better than they could. To that, I added a principle somewhere early in my career. The principle was you can, you can basically accomplish almost anything if you don't care who gets the credit. That's a principle. And then I, I added even further to that principle. I started saying to myself, I really want to deflect credit because in many respects, credit's never individual. It's usually a group. So when someone says, Candace, you did a great job. You, yeah, yeah, I did. No, no, you say to them, you know, really, John and Mary Sue, they, they really made it happen. You get a trifecta. You feel good. Person asks the questions, feel good. And when Mary and John find out, they feel good. So I added that deflecting credit. So when I, when I, when I left Harvard Business School as, as a president, they were going to give me a, day, you know, a coronation, a, a plaque, and tell me how wonderful I was. That day, I created a video on the associate dean of, of uh, the associate dean there. And I created a video on her because she really... She really, Christine Fairchild really did it. I mean, I was there three, four times a year. So I created a video on her and showed her. The same thing when I, when I finished up as the chairman of the University of Rochester. I had 60 trustees. I gave each one of them a crystal thank you piece. It was, it was their name, University of Rochester, and it said, thanks, Ed, on it. I said, this is one thank you. It won't, won't disappear. It's like, stop. You put it on your desk. So, you know, deflecting credit. And then think about in Wall Street, I had a principle to live happy is still hidden. I didn't go into press. People like you couldn't talk to me. I didn't go into paper. I didn't go on television because I really want to work on my company and I didn't want to be an, a public individual. What's happened now? I've thrown that principle away and now I'm out talking to you and everybody else trying to make, make sure my book gets you know, bought by people. So, so you do change your principles a little bit. The, the real, what you just said though, there are some embedded, those lines you won't cross. I mean, I, I, just, I just will try, I'll try like hell and never do anything really wrong. If I know something's wrong, I just don't do it. I don't cross that line. And I, unfortunately, have seen friends of mine do that. One of them actually ended up in prison. My wife says, don't talk about that. But we were, I'm in a YPO chapter, and this poor guy crossed the line. And then he got caught, and just and he didn't have to. He was a wonderful guy, bright, intelligent, family, the whole works. He crossed the line. And you know, that's what, early on, you got to figure those lines. You're just not going to cross no matter what. And you know, lines get pretty fuzzy when you get into work. Those, those things are hard to figure out, but the nuns made it easy on me. They said, boy, if you do this, the right stuff, you get to the right place. If you do the wrong stuff, you go to the other place. So <laughs> early on, I got the principles. <laughs> Who have been some of your favorite partners and collaborators over time? The wonderful question. First of all, there are three kinds of partners. There's partners that do things you can't do. In today's world, you have to have that technician that, that makes that stuff you can't do. You're going to find those partners who do things better than you can do them. 
The third one, people don't realize, there's partners who do things that you do really well, but you don't want to do. Now, if you can find those three partners, either in one person or in a series of people, you end up doing things you do well that you like to do, which is nirvana. My most important partner, somewhere in my life for 10 years, 12 years in the business, I, I was at Lehman Brothers. I was a partner, a member board director, and then I was rolling along. And one of my partners came and said, you got a weakness. I said, what is that? I said, you don't look at the numbers as way you shouldn't. I said, you're wrong. Then I thought about it. I'm a culture, strategy, people person. And numbers come after that. And he, and he said, right, you need that. And he introduced me to a six foot five Dartmouth graduate whose father was a numbers man, was an administrator, did all the things I didn't want to do. And he and I, Steve, his name was, partnered for 35 years. And he saved my life kind of every other month. I would say, don't do that. Watch this. Here it is. And so Steve was a wonderful partner, as you, as I could say. The most important partner I skipped already, though, is Barbara. I mean, you got to find someone to love, someone who will actually be interested in you, will support you. You know, you can share your life with it. And, you know, she makes she and I make all our decisions together. And 57 years of marriage, it's been an absolute spectacular experience. That's the most important partner. You got to find that partner. And if you can find that partner, whatever the structure is today, it doesn't make any difference. Find someone who you can spend your life with. But the other partner that I think is very important in life is a friend. I tell the graduates, look to the left, look to the left, find someone you might want to spend the rest of your life with that you'll talk to on a regular basis because we'll also know you, but won't be your, 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 your spouse. And I had a fellow named Dick. Dick Wiedemeyer, uh, Richard Wiedemeyer. And, you know, he, we were, in, we were engineers together. We were in the Navy together. And he went to the Harvard Business School. And I went to work. And he said, you can't do that. You've got to come to Harvard Business School. And he just was, he was, you know, just definitely. So I went up there. And, of course, it changed my life. He and I worked together. We lived in the same neighborhood together. And the biggest story I tell is when he finally got a terminal disease about 10 years ago, I would call him up once a week. And I'd say, Dick, how are you? And he would say, he would never talk about himself and say, how are you? How are the children? Are you working too hard? He was interested in me to the end. So find a friend. And then as far as other partners are concerned, if you can find groups, it's important too. I have a group that we've met with for the last 40 years, about you know, 12 of us or down about eight of us now. And we come together once every couple of months and talk about, well, in the old days we talked about business and our family. Now we talk about our organ. We have organ recitals, you know. <laughs> which which shoulder is bad, which knee is bad, and so forth. But but it's really a communication, and you know somebody had prostate cancer, so we were able to you know locate one of the guys knew one of the great doctors, and they introduced him and so forth. So if you can find groups of partners, it's important as well. And so those are the partners. But partners really, I found in, in my book it shows very clearly if I had the right partners, I succeeded. If I had the wrong partners and no partners, I failed. And I think that's I'm only as good as the people I surround myself with. And of course, my wife was the most important partner. I've been surrounding myself with her for 57 years. <laughs> yes, Ed, you are a lucky man. What is it that you want readers to take away from this fable? I think basically, let them come away with one or two things they can use from the book that will help them over their bumps. You know, the bumps, early, especially young people early in life or people in transition. I want them to be able to use this to go back and look at these, these eight words and hopefully come up and make better life decisions. And, you know, I already have success. I've got letters from people saying that my, you know, my, my daughter or my son wrote, read the book and they weren't going to go to college. Now they're going to college. And, and you know, this is a, the kind of thing I want to really come away with. And I also wanted to have a little fun with it. Just like you read when you read, you know, Gulliver's Travels or Don Quixote, have a little fun with it. 
have the idea conveyed more universally rather than someone telling you exactly what to do. And also having people recognize that they are unique and that you need unique answers. That's too much, but what do you, to come away with a couple of ideas that you can use Monday morning in your own life. That's, that's what I'm looking for, looking for people to do. And somebody, if someone just says, I, I really want to review my principles or I really want to review my passions and they dig in on it, I think it'd be helpful for me. Or to understand you need partners. A lot of us don't know we need partners. We're entering graduation season. Ed, your book will make a wonderful gift. This is a must read for anybody seeking a life filled with success and framed with significance, said one of your friends who blurbed the book. The Island of the Four Peas, a modern fable about preparing for your future. The author is a friend to this program, Ed Hagem. It's a, it, absolutely, it's a perfect gift for, for graduation, I think. You know, take away from it. One of the people down here at Ocean Week, what, 25 of them, because he has 21 grandchildren. <laughs> Ed, so good to see you, and thank you for your time. Thank you. It's always my pleasure. Stay with us. In our next segment, opportunities for young people aging out of the foster care system. This is Perspectives. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.